The Mission publishes the number one newsletter for accelerated learning. Learn from the best and brightest by joining our community at themission.co forward slash subscribe. On this episode of the Mission Daily, Chad sits down with Russ Roberts, a former economics professor and the host of the Econ Talk podcast. Together, they discuss the future of higher education, the lessons Russ learned from teaching, and how the internet is democratizing education. We hope you enjoy. Russ, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. So let's jump into it today. So Russ, are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. Let's do it. What is your go-to app on your phone? New York Times crossword puzzles where I waste the most time right now, although I like to think it's building my brain to avoid senility as I get older. But Are you going to the crossword puzzle in favor of social media? or Yeah, because I took Twitter off my phone as okay. a health uh, mental health exercise. And with that <laughs> used to be my go-to app, which I could do endlessly. I could scroll down through my Twitter feed forever. And I realized that probably isn't the healthiest thing in the world. And so I'm now using the New York Times crossword puzzle for the same thing. I love it. What's one of your favorite books you've read this past year and why? Oh, boy. I read so many books. Uh, as host of Econ Talk, I read about 20, 30 books a year. Ironically, I'd say my favorite book I've read this year is not was not for Econ Talk. It's In the First Circle by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a novel he wrote a long time ago that I had read 40 years ago and decided to revisit. There's a new edition out where he, he had self-censored the original edition. It's a sprawling, heartbreaking novel, and it blew me away. That's uh, That sounds like a deep novel for anyone that wants to intense. brave enough to take that dive. Are there any podcasts other than Econ Talk that you're listening to at the moment or can't get enough of? No, because I, well, except for this one. Uh, <laughs> no, I would say I don't, it's weird. I'm not a big podcast listener because I work out of my own house most of the time. I don't have a commute. I'm not much of an exerciser and I don't have a dog. So when am I going to listen to a podcast? So when I do, I tend to listen to Radio Lab, which I'm a big fan of mainly because my kids listen to it a little bit. Okay. And so it's fun for me to share stuff with them. And how, how many kids? I, I, I have four that. kids. Okay. Nice. Any ages you can? Yeah. I hope 25 through <laughs> 18, a girl and three boys, and two or three of them are pretty heavy podcast listeners. Although, of course, n- almost none of them listen to Econ Talk, but that's life. They'll warm up eventually. Yeah, here. they'll grow up. They got, they got maturing. <laughs> what about music? They're raised very poorly. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> so what about music? Are there any uh, playlists or albums? Remember albums? They, they, they yeah, still yeah. exist? All so the, listeners the craziest thing I've been listening to lately is somebody created a chronological Spotify list of every Bob Dylan song. I think it's 50 hours of music. Wow. And there's about five ver- four versions of Tangled Up in Blue, which is a song I always liked when I was younger and it's amazing dylan actually changed the melody of that song and the words of every single verse in some of the live versions he did or bootleg versions or so that's that's really fun one of my favorite dylan anecdotes is that so many of his songs came to him in seven to eleven minutes supposedly that he would just basically freestyle (laughs) and and write out i don't know if that was a marketing ploy on his part or if that was (laughs) actually what happened be true but i i like to believe that, that that was what happened so you're a busy guy, but if you do have time to enjoy a movie or a TV series, what are you watching? What are your favorites? So I, my wife and I watch some series. We, we're always looking for a good series. It's hard to find for us sometimes because, of course, we have different interests. And 
But to my shock, I really enjoyed The Crown, the first two seasons of The Crown. I have no interest in British royalty, but the production values of that show and the acting and dialogue is extraordinary. And it's really a picture of the 20th, last half of the 20th century through the eyes of England as England became less important. We love that. We loved The Wire when it was when it came out. And lately, I've been watching James Acaster. I don't know if you know him, a British comedian. He's I don't. a four-part series on Netflix that's so off the... Outside the box, he's a really creative, funny, different kind of comedian. I'm going to check that out. So that was the lightning round, and now we're going to venture into deeper waters. So are there any trends or movement inside higher education that are especially inspiring or exciting for you? So we hear so often about things that are going wrong inside higher ed. What do you see that's going right that you're excited about? Well, you know, some of it is taking place outside the formal parts of higher education. You know, the online education opportunities have increased dramatically. This podcast being an example, so many opportunities for people to learn more about the world through every sort of, from YouTube to podcasting to MOOCs that are now available typically without charge, which is just glorious. But within the academy, within the university setting, you know, there's a lot of turmoil right now. There's a a lot of debate about what students should be exposed to, what the environment should be like, how much ideology should be. There's a lot of pushback from people who are unhappy with the way that universities have been tending in the last 10, 20 years. I just saw a very interesting chart of humanities majors. It's just fallen through the floor. I mean, the net proportion of people majoring in the humanities is down to about 5%. Now, you could say that's Ah, that's great. We need more STEM. Well, STEM is really important, but so is English and so is philosophy. And one of the things I think that's hard, my oldest son's a biochem major, just graduated, and his opportunity as a biochem major to learn things outside of biochem mm-hmm. was very limited, which is understandable. It's biochem's complicated. It's and he actually learned something profoundly right. important about the world by being a biochem major and has some level of mastery, which is typically not the case for a college undergrad degree. You know, in economics, which is, you could argue, is one of the more rigorous social sciences, most econ majors don't have mastery of economics. They have some idea of what it's about. But if you take a STEM subject, if you major in physics or mathematics, you become an engineer, when you're done, you really know a lot about something but you don't know a lot about other things. So I think one of the challenges is that as we move toward this, and we have, as we have moved toward this more STEM-oriented focus for, for a larger group of students, that's something really great about that. They're not getting the exposure to other stuff. And some people would say, well, who cares? Well, English isn't important. It's not, it's just, it's useless. It's just frivolous. And it's not, in my view, it's very much not the case. I think English is extremely important. I think philosophy is extremely important. History is extremely important. So I think we're, we've lost a little something there. So the that's a trend that actually I'm, I'm somewhat concerned about. Very natural trend, by the way. Sure. Specialization makes a lot of sense. Definitely. In, in a world where, especially where the skill set that a person needs to be successful requires a lot of background, a lot of knowledge. And so you're going to specialize. You're going to invest deeply into that one thing, but it's good to remember there are other things. There's definitely a trade-off happening because with when you take out the humanities and all the people in technology and science and those fields, I think they inherently build tools that maybe don't have humanist inspirations all the time. And that's that's definitely a real trade-off I think we need to be aware of. So you've taught many places, George Mason University, UCLA, 
Stanford, you founded what became the Center for Experiential Learning. And from all of those experiences, is there any story that stands out in terms of, is there a student success story or something that you always remembered? It's not one thing I think that stands out. I think the challenge in education and particularly in college today is that faculty is very expensive. People have very high value of time. And so the teaching process itself is, there's always a temptation to automate it. Multiple choice exams to reduce the time, say, for grading, reduce the amount of writing because it's hard to grade essays. And, you know, there's some hope that AI will help us do this better. I'm not I'm not optimistic about that. Maybe I'll be wrong. But the fact is, is that a lot of things are taught, I think, at a very superficial level. Sure. And I, I've always been a proponent of teaching fewer things more deeply. I don't care if you don't understand a vast amount of economic language and terms. I want you to understand the economic way of thinking. And that's a very hard thing to teach and a hard thing to test. And so I think we have a temptation to move away from that. And so the things I'm proudest of as a teacher are the people who tell me 10 and 20 years later, you change the way I look at the world. That's my goal. My goal is not to teach, give you a survey of what economics is about and then be able to give you a multiple choice exam question like the marginal rate of substitution is A, the ratio of the prices, B, the ratio of the marginal utilities, C, the I, I, that's literally that's a waste of to me, that's very close to a waste of time. And the challenge is, is that the the profound lessons we learn as students and the profound lessons we can impart as teachers are not easily cookbooked and, and formulaic. And so the things that have been most satisfying to me as a teacher are helping people get a different view of the world. And so that's really what I think it's about. I think that's why people love education. That's why they love to become teachers. And we have to keep that in mind. I do too. I think that as we start to think about what's the ROI on this degree yeah. in four or five years or six years, it misses the point that sometimes a lot of the more humanizing forms of investment don't show ROI until a decade two decades down the road. So that seems like a, a really inspiring thing to get that student who you, know, you run into two decades later. I mean, think about something we don't teach generally in, in school, which is self-awareness. Mm -hmm. To know yourself is a hugely important thing. And generally, we don't have classes in how to know yourself. So you'll notice that online now, there's an immense amount of sure essays and techniques and apps for, say, meditation that are trying to help us close that gap. Yes. I, I call it growing up. I, mean, I don't think it's anything <laughs> much more than that, but it's very hard to grow up. And traditionally, historically, that's what higher education was. Higher education was for a very small slice of the population who are going to be leaders and who are going to therefore need to understand a whole rich set of stuff, not just about the world, but about themselves. And it was about maturing. And I think a lot of what education has become today is is very much about exploring yourself, your identity and what's important to you. Can't do that in four years. It takes a lifetime. But you also need a methodology for how to get better at it. Sure. And we don't really teach that. And so the internet to me is is just so full of useful, not so useful as well. <laughs> a challenge trying to figure out what's useful to you and what isn't, but ways that we can get to know ourselves. And I think that's just an incredible development that's uh, you know outside of formal education. And it's definitely more of a complement that can yeah. work in conjunction well with existing higher ed. So if we had to look at all the different colleges and universities where you've taught, 
Are there any stories or lessons you've learned about institutional change? So again, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking institutions always just degrade over time and become worse. What are some examples or one example of an institution that really turned it around or you got to see firsthand grow into something that you couldn't even imagine when you first entered? So having been in education and universities for 38 years, one of the stranger things about it is that they don't work like a lot of other things. And so people on the outside tend to misunderstand how they work. You know, they don't understand that this the whole idea of, edu- of, say, a university department is a bunch of cats that you're trying to herd, and you can't herd cats. Right. Uh, so, you know, people will say to me, well, doesn't your boss tell you to, you know, it's like, the whole boss thing. That's why we went into education. We don't like bosses. We're kind of self-employed under the whole umbrella of the university. And I kind of get to do my own thing. And I get to pick my own class. I get to pick my own textbook. I get to design my own syllabus. So we're all kind of like entrepreneurs, but we're in this brand called the university. And the way I'll take your question is, is, is about innovation. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of innovation. There isn't a lot of innovation in in universities. And when there is, it can be very exhilarating. So when I was at Washington University in St. Louis, the dean at the time of the business school was Bob Virgil, and he felt that our program was too theoretical, and he wanted students to have some more experience in the real world. But he wasn't sure how to do that. And the business school got a grant to try to bring in some real-world people to bring their knowledge and expertise into the business school training, but in a very unspecified way. Without going to the details, they ended up hiring me, which is ironic because I knew very little about the real world or I'm an academic. I'm a PhD in economics, very little business experience, you know, scooping ice cream at Hojo's. That's Howard Johnson's for <laughs> you younger folks, which is, doesn't help for most of you. It's a was an ice cream chain and restaurant chain. So I don't have a lot of, of real world experience, but I tried to create some programs. It was called the Management Center and later became the Center for Experiential Learning. And that was an incredible entrepreneurial activity within a very unentrepreneurial place, the university. Right. Bob Virgil gave me the freedom to design different kinds of programs for entrepreneurship, which at the time wasn't taught in the business school. It wasn't a cool is, thing. Which was, right. It was a new thing. Entrepreneurship, we work with nonprofits. We work with, with startups, with entrepreneurs. We work with Fortune 500 corporations as consultants with the students. So I created a whole bunch of different programs. That was so much fun. A lot of academic life isn't fun. It's just its own weird research and teaching thing. So I had a, a unique opportunity there to create a bunch of programs and to let them evolve because sure. you know you start them and you realize, oh, this isn't working or the students aren't getting as much out of it as they should or whatever. So to be in a university that is open to that level of innovation or an institution, in that case, the business school itself, was really spectacular. George Mason also had a very entrepreneurial focus at the time. And I mean, on studying entrepreneurship, I mean, allowing people to do creative things. When I was there, there was a lot of openness to to new stuff. I think there's a tendency in education to say, you know, we're not Stanford, so we have to become like Stanford. Right. Instead of saying, here's our strengths. What can we do that Stanford isn't doing? Sure. What can we do to stand out? You know, George Mason is an example of that. It's economics department's very quirky. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying, we're going to be like Stanford, Chicago, Harvard, MIT. When I was there, we said, we're going to be like George Mason and we're going to do something really different. And that was also really fun. Very, very uh, unusual place. I love that. All right. So this question takes it a little bit deeper. Bear with me here. So many of the best ideas, technologies, or ways of doing more with less 
typically gets started in the mind of one person or a handful of people and the progress and you know our civilization depend on those minorities of one or minorities of two or three is there anything that you believe about higher education or the education system at large that few or ideally none of your colleagues agree with you on? I don't know if I could be so bold as to make that claim. I do think, you know, what I referred to earlier is incredibly important and underappreciated, if not ignored, which is, you know, if you want to change somebody's life, which should be what education is about, mm -hmm. as opposed to like telling them something. Now think about that distinction. I'm going to tell you something. That's not education. Right. That's what... We have Google for that now, right? <laughs> that's that's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. I I don't have to tell you who wrote the Charge of the Light Brigade. Just Google it. You can find it. I'm not going to then test your memory if you remember who that I told you who it was. That's not interesting. I have the opportunity to teach you how to love poetry. That's what we should be doing in the educational system. I think the tragedy of education in America today is, to some extent, it's a it's a credentialing phenomenon. And I think there is an opportunity for disruption. There's an opportunity to create a university experience, an educational experience that is transformational of, of a person's way of looking at the world and looking at themselves. And you have to ask yourself then, why isn't that out there? Why are so many universities cookie cutter? Mm -hmm. And why is it so much of they do of what they do not relevant or not transformational of a student's life. You, you take somebody who's in college today, go to a relative or yourself if you're listening and say, can you think of a course that changed your life? Can you think of a course that was transformational? And I suspect, unfortunately, the answer is often no. And the typical thing you hear, which used to break my heart, is someone would say, I like Professor So-and-so, you know, he really knows this stuff, but he's so smart, he can't explain it to us. Uh, thinking he's a bad teacher. It's not a good, that's not a good, you know, there's yeah. nothing to be impressed about there. So the promise of online education was to take the transformational teachers and get them to reach more than just 100 students or 250 students, but to reach 250,000 or 25 million. And we haven't, we haven't achieved that. We failed at that for a lot of reasons. You know, my friend Arnold Kling, the economist, says education's feedback, meaning we're constantly telling the student how they're doing so they can gauge what they've learned and haven't learned and where they need to go next. And we haven't figured out a very good way of giving that feedback online. Whereas face-to-face, -face, I can look at facial expressions. I can do testing in a way I can't. It's too hard to do right now over the internet. So I think there's still the potential for a transformational educational experience. And yet you'd have to ask, why, if I'm right, why hasn't it happened? And one of the reasons it hasn't happened is that the credential of college has become so central to, quote, getting ahead, making it career, that to take a chance and, say, skip college and take those four years and do something extraordinary that might be much more valuable is so frightening to parents, reasonably so, <laughs> I get it, but it's so frightening to parents that it's very hard to make that leap. And I think there's an opportunity for somebody to create that option to make that leap and still keep enough of the credentialing part so that it would attract students. And I, I think that's an opportunity that maybe we'll see it. I love that answer. So from all of your experience inside higher education, are there any specific people that you have learned the most from? Maybe Dr. Becker or any mentors that you had along the way that really helped you succeed? Going back to my undergraduate at the University of North Carolina and at graduate school at the University of Chicago, you know, I had five to 10 people who were transformational for me, taught me how to write Doris Betts or The Economist who taught me how to think, Ken Wirtz, Saul Polachek, 
Gary Becker, Deirdre McCloskey, probably forgetting some, I apologize. What's interesting to me is that because I host an economics podcast, my teachers have become some of my guests and they've become as important to me as as my formal teachers were. Arnold Kling, I mentioned, Don Boudreau, Mike Munger. These are people I've interviewed multiple times. They're not my teachers, but boy, are they my teachers. I've learned so much from them, from engaging. And one of the lessons I've learned, I'm sure it's true for you too, is conversation is very powerful. Dialogue is very powerful. You know, in the classroom, we talk about a Socratic teaching method where the teacher asks questions and students respond. I think our brains perhaps are wired to hear back and forth and to be able to probe, to ask stupid questions, <laughs> to probe, extend things with, with a thoughtful person on the other side of the conversation rather than just your own mind it is really an, an exhilarating educational process. And I'm sure I've learned so much from so many people that I don't even realize through that process. So are any of the folks you mentioned or any of the people that you've befriended or are friends with inside the system, what is the general consensus right now about, if, if you could pin it down to one general consensus about where higher education is at and what its biggest challenge as a whole might be? I don't think there's a consensus. I, there's a consensus, I think, among certain groups of people who have certain tastes about what they want to see fixed. Sure. Uh, obviously, there are people worried about the political nature of universities right now on either side of the political fence. Personally, what bothers me is the loss of education and the emphasis on non-educational aspects of university life. Most of the cost of higher education, a lot of, not most, but a lot of the cost of higher education are the amenities outside the classroom. And that's okay. That's what people want. But I think we've lost sight of some of the educational, the centrality of education is ironic, sounds ridiculous, but I think that that's a real issue. So I think, you know, obviously, to some extent, education is in flux right now. It's such a non-innovative area. It's such, it moves so slowly. And one of the reasons, by the way, is it's very hard to disrupt. You know, it's very hard to say, I'm going to start a better university. Right. Accreditation, it's, not right. so easy. You got accreditation, That's but that's the easiest part. It's not easy, but yeah. it's the easiest part. The hard part is how do you create a reputation that people can say, oh, you went to X. And that's a big problem is that it's very hard for competition to do its magic in the university setting. It, it works pretty well with the ones that are already in the game, but a newcomer is a lot harder to start. And uh, I wish that was something that changes. Love it. And final question here. So you're a research fellow at the Stanford Hoover Institution. How did you get that opportunity and how did you end up there? A lot of my career was a standard academic. I had some periods of time when I was at Washington University in St. Louis, where I worked really as an administrator in the business school, creating new programs. That was really different. But at one point I got to be in a think tank and I realized that there were things I wanted to write about at the time, it, it was called the Center for the Study of the Economy and the State, I think. And it later became the Wiedenbaum Center at Washington University. But I realized I wanted to do more of that kind of writing, that kind of communicating. And we really live in a golden age of education mm -hmm. writ large. My career, which is as a fellow with the Hoover Institution, my job is people say, well, do you, what, what's your research? Well, I don't do a lot of research. I do a little bit of research, very little. Most of what I do is I teach, but not in the classroom. I teach to the world at large through podcasts, through videos, through books, through long-form essays. And the opportunity to do that is unparalleled. It didn't exist 20 years ago. I would be have a very different career if I'd been born in 1934 instead of 1954. And I'm very grateful for that. It's just pure luck that I can be a fellow at the Hoover Institution 
through my ability to communicate rather than my pure economic research. And I think it's a new thing. And you know, I, I like to say that when I was younger, there were two economists who had the opportunity to communicate with the public. It was Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson. Milton Friedman was a free market guy and Paul Samuelson was more of a government intervention guy. And they alternated columns on the back page of Newsweek. And that was it. Mm. Those are the two people who got the privilege of trying to reach a broader audience. And now dozens and dozens, hundreds of economists have followings on Twitter, have blogs, write essays, write books for the public. The internet's just been an extraordinary opportunity to communicate, incredible conduit, incredible marketplace of ideas. And so I'm just very grateful for that. And, and as you know, when you host a podcast, you get to talk to ideally people. Who, I talk to people every week who are smarter than I am, and you get smarter. And even more important than getting smarter, I think it's your brain stays alive. And so I'm very grateful for that. Wise words. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our guest, Russ Roberts, and we will see you next time. The Mission Studios creates custom media for world-class companies like Salesforce, Twilio, Katera, and more. To connect with our team of creatives, you can reach us at info at the mission. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. .co.